discussion of hymns, music, and singing in the life of the church. I'm Zach DePrima, and with me as always is my brother Alex. Alex, how are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm, uh, I'm glad that, that in my own local church we're gathering again, even though it's a little bit limited. I'm, uh, I'm very happy to be, to be back uh, with, with church. Well, speaking of getting back with the church and gathering, the psalmist in Psalm 122, verse 1 says, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Now, this has relevance to the topic we're going to be discussing today, and that's the topic of privilege or a sense of privilege in worship. Hmm. So the first question I wanted us to discuss is, should Christians feel a sense of privilege in gathered worship? And if so, why? Well, they absolutely should feel a sense of privilege because we were born dead in our trespasses and sins, alienated from God. And so... To, 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 to have been God's enemy and been children of wrath, destined for destruction, and then to be saved by his grace and brought into fellowship and reconciliation with him, not by anything we did, but only by the grace of God, that should overwhelm mm. us with a sense of privilege. Like, who am I? Mm. That God would set his love on me in Christ before the foundations of the world and in time bring me to saving faith in him? It's all privilege. Uh, it, 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 it's It's... It's, um, it sort of boggles the imagination that God would take care to save sinners like us. And therefore, to now be a worshiper of God, it can only be, um, it can only create, I think, a sense of privilege in us. Well, if, if all of life is worship, Alex, and myself being bought with the blood of Christ affects my whole life, why should I feel a particular sense of privilege when I gather with God's people for worship, as opposed to just living? Well, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure it should be completely different. I think we recognize that one of the things God does when he saves a person is brings them into a family, hmm. brings them into a church, and, and you feel a sense of privilege sort of to bear the family name and to be identified with certain people and to be identified with the Lord's house. And, um, and then certainly there are all these blessings that come to us when we gather. You know, so, so it, it, the, um, the scriptures say that where two or three are gathered together, in Matthew 18, where two or three are gathered together in my name, the Lord says, I am with them also. And, and, and we normally think of that most clearly being applied in gathered worship. We're talking about the subject of privilege. I mean, if, let's say, um, in you know, 19th century England, you had a casual you know, gathering of friends and Queen Victoria condescended to attend your meeting, hmm. wouldn't you feel a sense of privilege? The mm-hmm. queen is coming to my house. What mm-hmm. a privilege. How exciting this is. What a privilege that the risen Christ is in our midst. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, that's a heightened sense of, of, of privilege we feel that the king is here. He's, he's condescended to come and inhabit our meeting. And, and as he comes, he comes to do things for us, to bless us, to communicate his grace to us through the means of grace, the preaching of the word and uh, praying with one another and singing together. So yeah, all that in my mind contributes to a heightened sort of sense of privilege we feel when we gather together as the people of God. And you would say, though we are new covenant worshipers, we probably we see ourselves in continuity with that same expectation of gathering that we see in the old covenant. Sure. Yeah. There's 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 different 
uh, different you know, things that qualify the meeting to some degree now. But yes, when we read, especially in the Psalms, of this anticipation of going to gathered mm-hmm. worship and all the mm-hmm. blessing that's going to come with it, you read Psalm 121, or 122, verse 1, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Um, oh, yeah, th- those, those, those are the words of, of, on our lips and mm-hmm. on our hearts mm-hmm. as we come to gathered worship here in the New Covenant. Yeah, I think a Psalm 65 says, praise is due to you, yeah. O God, yeah. in, in Zion, Zion being the city of God, mm-hmm. a place of worship. Mm-hmm. That's right. Well, we're, we're using the word privilege, Alex. In our cultural moment, the word privilege often has a negative connotation. So, so just, just check my thinking. Pri- privilege isn't a bad word, is it? No, not at all. And I think we're talking about a sense of privilege. Mm. So if I sense that I'm privileged, that's a good thing. Mm. If you sense you have some privilege by virtue of the grace of someone else, mm. I, didn't, I didn't earn my place in this family, you know, the family of God. It's by virtue of God's grace that I'm here. I've been given this great privilege. What does that generate? Gratitude, thanksgiving, not pride or arrogance or selfish ambition or, or a sort of brazen, you know, cocky, you know, boldness or something like that. It, it creates gratitude and a sense of, of thanksgiving to God that I've been given this great privilege. That's in every way wholesome. Mm. And I think what our culture, you know, wants to combat is the sort of, you know, someone has certain privileges and they think they're entitled to those privileges and they use them as a leg up on other people. That's not the posture of the Christian. It's not the posture of David in Psalm 8 hmm. uh, where he says, he, he's, he's thinking of God and who God is and he just sort of sort of says, what is man that you are mindful of him? Yeah. Like, I can't even believe God, you take thought of me. Hmm. That's that's an appropriate, wholesome, wonderful sense of privilege. Hmm. Why do you think it is that that God wants us to feel privileged when we worship Him? Well, I think a couple things. I mean, He certainly wants us to recognize His grace and His compassion and His mercy on us. If we feel entitled or we feel that we've earned favor with God, that doesn't speak highly of God. Um, Paul talks about this the whole issue of boasting. Uh, let him who makes his boast boast in the Lord. Um, let's boast in his grace and what his grace has accomplished for us. And our sense of privilege leads us to that type of boasting. Speaks highly of God. Uh, we're not peers with God. The sovereign has condescended to, to, to make his enemies his friends and now to live in relationship with us. So it honors God. And we assume that posture of, of privilege when we, we enter into and it also says, I think, that we esteem what we're doing. Yeah. If I feel this is a privilege to be here, yeah. I don't view it primarily as a duty. I don't pri- primarily view it as drudgery. I, I view it as something wonderful that I get to partake in, and I'm thankful for it and delighted in it. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, is it your sense that, that Christians need to reclaim a sense of privilege in worship? And I would say maybe not our church in particular, but, but broader in the evangelical community. Yeah, certainly. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think going to church it can be very mundane. It can be very just something we do. And, and we've lost sight of the really glorious realities that are taking place when a covenanted body of people come together to worship God. All that's promised in terms of what attends that meeting, the Spirit's presence, the presence of the Lord Jesus, the grace that comes through what takes place in the worship service, the mutual edification of the body. And our, I, I, I think we should have this sense, I don't belong here by virtue of how I've behaved in my life or through my sins or my actions or my works, I, I have been given a place here 
only by God's sheer grace. And that just should elevate our sense of the, the, the wonder of the whole moment, the whole event. Hmm. It is the case often, Alex, that, that some Christians and even some mature Christians don't place a high priority on gathered worship. Hmm. It's, it's not, a, it's not a, a significant value to them. Why do you think it is that, that some Christians struggle with this? So they, they don't look forward to gathering with God's people for worship. It could be any number of reasons. I mean, it, it could be because um, they're not thoughtful enough about what the Bible says about public worship and the priority it's to play in our lives. It could be because we're dulled and distracted by um, the, the, the many things that claim our attention in this world. And yeah, the idea of sitting with a bunch of Christians singing songs and hearing a sermon seems boring and passe to us because we're a distracted age. It could be that you know, uh, those of us who preach aren't doing our job well. We're, we're, we're reading dull sermons with no life in them, and we're not making, we're, we're doing a disservice to those who come and gather. Hmm. And, mm-hmm. so, and so we've, in ourselves, even provided a reason for people to view these sorts of gatherings as, as, as boring or something like that. But I, I think it comes most often from a lack of appreciation for what the Bible teaches about what is taking place. Yes. In, in our regular gatherings. And so many Christians are just not cognizant of that. We think, if, the, if I find this particularly helpful, I'll come. If I don't, I won't come. Hmm. That's not the Bible's view of gathered worship at all. Hmm. Mm-hmm. It's an essential expression of our very identities, hmm. our, our, our life together as the people of God. God's people worship together. It's what they do. Right. And so it's, it's, it's just never a question, are we going to go to church or are we going to be the church? We are the church, yeah. you know, and, and our behaviors flow from that. Well, in what ways does, does congregational singing and music evoke a sense of, of privilege and worship? Well, I mean, you, you sing about the things you love. You th- sing about the things that are valuable and precious to you. And so singing itself as an act, is, it, it, is, it is acknowledging that this is a privilege, uh, singing, singing engages the heart in a way that 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 not a lot of other things do. It's it's unique in that sense, and um, I think it it is it is in keeping with a sense of privilege. If this is a precious thing to me, if I value this, and if I value God, and I delight in Him, I sing to Him. I mean, that's how the Bible talks about singing. The invitations to singing. Uh, in the Psalms, for example, usually have this tone of exuberance, this tone of anticipation, of excitement. We're going to the house of God. We're in the presence of the Lord. Let's sing praises to his name. Um, so I, I think our songs can very much help us in that regard, hmm. you know, our mm-hmm. singing. Yeah, I think to that point, as a church, our songs, we try to have uh, each song that we sing in a manual to have three things for that song to be theologically rich, for it to be congregational, and for it to be musically excellent. Mm-hmm. And we recognize that that musically excellent or edifying piece is, is a bit of a moving target, mm-hmm. and different people have different preferences. But why is that important to us? Well, we want the music of our church to engage people's hearts yeah, and to give them a sense of, of, of privilege and delight in the God that they're singing to. And, and yeah, to help evoke that sense of privilege. I mean, uh, an illustration, I, I think of my alma mater, the college that I, that I got my undergrad at, and I won't give the name here. Uh, uh, the the song that was our alma mater was so uninspiring. <laughs> it was just so awful. Yeah. And I don't mind saying it because whoever wrote it's probably been dead for fifty years. Oh. But it was just it was so terrible that 
you just you hated singing it. Yeah. And not only did I hate singing it, but I hated the I didn't enjoy the gatherings that I had to go to where that song was sung. <laughs> And I could think, you know, so it, you didn't feel a sense of privilege. I didn't feel a sense of being a, a part of that privilege, being a part of that institution because yeah. the song was so poor. And I, I think if if, if songwriters are, are writing hymns and a church mm-hmm. is curating tunes for their church, mm-hmm. they, they ought to choose tunes and music and and melodies that bring out people of people's affections. Yeah, and I think I think we we need to work hard at that. I think we, it, it can be easy to think, well, that's just worship should be simple. Um, it, it's it's okay if the songs are a little bit dull. Mm-hmm. Sing them anyway. It's the words that matter. Well, no. By virtue of the fact that we are we're, we're singing the words and not just saying them out loud, should be a hint to us that the nature of the music matters. Mm-hmm. It, it, it is a it is a gift from God to help engage the heart and cultivate the appropriate attitudes and emotions and affections that are to attend. Uh, worship. Yeah. Well, we want to move to our hymn of the week, and our hymn of this podcast is How Sweet and Awful is the Place. Now, Alex, do you prefer How Sweet and Awful, Awesome, Sacred? What do you think is the best word? My, my particular preference is How Sweet and Awful, but I am I wouldn't quibble with anyone who who thinks that confuses the meaning of, of the song itself, and they want to use How Sweet and Awesome. I'm not going to I agree. For for the purposes of of this of this talk we're having, I'm going to say awful the rest of rest of our Sounds discussion. Good. But this hymn it was written by Isaac Watts, and the hymn uh, evokes a, a, a distinct sense of privilege in gathered worship. A little bit about Isaac Watts. I'm just going to say for for anyone listening to this, Isaac Watts is is such an enormous figure and titan of hymnody that it's not worth profiling his biography and his work in in this little conversation that we're having. I'll probably do that at another time, but just so you have a little bit of a of a picture of his life. His dates are 1674 to 1748, and he he's widely recognized as the godfather of hymnody. There wasn't much of, of, of hymn writing before Isaac Watts. There were, so you can find it in the Genevan tradition and Calvin's tradition. You'll find some hymns that were written in early Puritan days. There were some hymns that were written. Benjamin Keach, who lived uh, about a generation before Isaac Watts, was the first particular Baptist to, to introduce hymnody, mm-hmm. that is that is non-psalms, uh, to the life of the church. But it, it wasn't well-known. It wasn't common. And it wasn't until Isaac Watts, who probably just because of his genius and his love for Christ and his, the richness of his lyrics, really uh, uh, got hymnody off to a good foot. So, so, so you're saying, Zach, that Isaac Watts is kind of like the godfather of CCM. You could like a, say that. Like there would yeah. be no CCM before like Benjamin Keach. It was all yeah. Psalms, you know? Yeah. 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 Uh, some would say that he's the OG of, of hymnody. <laughs> uh, I don't prefer such terms, but, but some, sure. some would like sure. that. Yeah. Well, Watts himself, he served as a congregational pastor, a congregational list pastor, hymn writer, and poet in London until his death in 1748. Alex, just a quick question on the dates because I was a little confused by it. He lived from 1674 to 1748. He's often claimed as a Puritan. Would yeah. you agree with that? Uh, technically, no. And, and and what are the dates for Puritanism? Uh, yeah, we say 1688, 1700 might be an yeah. end date. It's, it's yeah, an it's ongoing a, it's, discussion. It's a hotly debated question. I, I would say from the 1550s, um, 
you would certainly have to be born before the 1700s and and be in England. So Isaac Watts is kind of a borderline figure. Hmm. Yeah. Okay, That'll I be- think he's he's more often associated with like the evangelical awakening, guys like Whitfield and the Wesleys and and all of that. Very yeah. interesting. This this relates to to a question I have for you in a little bit. But as far as this hymn, how sweet and awful is the place. It's actually a meditation on Luke 14, 14 through 24, which is the parable of the great banquet. And and that's a parable in which Jesus compares the kingdom of God to a great banquet to which a man invites many guests. And many of the people, they they refuse to come. so, So the man then invites the poor and the crippled and the blind of his land. But after this, he he commands that his servant to go out to the highways and to the hedges to compel more people to come. And he says something very interesting, the man in the parable. He says, to do all this, that my house may be filled. Mm -hmm. And the man, of course, Mm -hmm. is is supposed to be a picture of of God's heart, of of reaching Mm -hmm. uh, the nations with, with the gospel. Now, Watts appropriates this parable to the church. So he, he sort of conflates the proclamation of the kingdom of God with, with inviting people to, to mm. join the, the church. And uh, this hymn, it, it was written in, in uh, probably the early 1700s. Watts hymns were not first published until 1707. And the first, we typically in our church or in the Trinity hymnal, there are six verses to this song. The first four verses, they're, they're, they're different expressions of, of privilege and delight in worship. So the mm. first verse says, how sweet and awesome is the place where Christ is within the doors, while everlasting love displays the choices of her stores. Verse two talks about uh, uh, while our hearts and all our songs join to admire the feast, we, we cry, Lord, why was I a guest? The third verse says, why was I made to hear the voice and enter while there's room when thousands make a wretched choice and mm. rather starve than come? So there's a distinct proclamation and, and, and declaration of, of privilege. Why did God choose me mm-hmm. to join his kingdom? Why did God choose me to come to the banquet? And uh, but but in the last couple of verses, he, he sort of appropriates this to to uh, local congregations to the church. Uh, in the fifth verse, he says, "Pity the nations, O our God, constrain the earth to come. Send your victorious word abroad and bring the strangers home." And that verse serves as a plea for God to mm-hmm. reach the nations. And uh, then verse six is a longing for the gospel to be spread to churches. And, and uh, or for the gospel to spread and for churches to grow. He, the, the Watt says, he says, we long to see your churches full, that all the chosen race may with one voice and heart and soul mm. sing your redeeming grace. Alex, what are your impressions of this hymn, thoughts on this hymn? I think, I think this is something that needs to be recovered, this sense of being amazed at the grace of God, mm. being amazed at election, being amazed at God's love in Christ toward us and being surprised by his mercy, being surprised by his grace, that, that we, we recognize none of us deserves this. None mm. of us belongs here. Mm. None of us, you know, it's, it's not that God owed me or something like that. God, in an act of sheer grace, sent his son into the world to save my poor soul, the souls of many, and, and, and I, that should create in me such a sense thanksgiving, privilege, gratitude to God for what he alone has accomplished. And this this song captures that, the surprise of grace. Why me? Hmm. Why little, old, ugly, sinful, rebellious, wicked me? Hmm. Why was I made to hear your voice? Mm-hmm. 
and enter while there's room when others don't. Mm-hmm. You know, so I, I think I think the perspective of this song needs to be recovered. It, it elevates the grace of God in a wonderful way. Well, to your earlier point, a, a biblical sense of privilege does not communicate superiority to others. No, not it remotely. magnifies the grace of God. It removes boasting. Yeah, well, that's that that's that's the, uh, close to the heart of the gospel. Hmm. That this is all the work of God. And to say anything else is to be deeply dishonoring to the Lord, Hmm. to boast in our own works, our own achievements. Well, I was tall enough, or I was attractive enough, or I was smart enough, or I I was really clever. And the reason I was converted and my cousin was not is because I paid attention Hmm. in Sunday school. Mm -hmm. No, Mm -hmm. not not remotely. You are a child of God purely and totally by God's free grace in Christ. I want to draw our attention to that fifth verse. Let me read it again. What says, pity the nations, O our God, constrain the earth to come, send your victorious word abroad, and bring the strangers home. Mm. Now, Alex, it's often a discussion with with the Puritans that the Puritans lacked an Mm. evangelistic impulse Mm -hmm. and an impulse to, to reach the nations. Would you see this as a piece of evidence that that there was a missional sentiment with the, within the Puritans, or would you say this is a, the morning star of the evangelical movement? Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I, I I would I would I wouldn't say that. I think if someone wanted to criticize the Puritans as being unevangelistic, hmm. or they didn't desire to see the conversion of the lost or the conversion of the heathen, as they would say, there's just no evidence to support that. Hmm. It's just not true that the Puritans did not care about the lost or insensitive to evangelize. I think the debate that often happens in scholarly circles centers around, yeah, but what did they do about it? Hmm. And the the, the reality is— They wrote is, hymns. Yeah, sure. They prayed a lot. They, prayed they a held lot. prayer meetings, you know. <laughs> but I think, I think the reason that debate happens is because what you see in the mid-1700s, sort of after the Puritan movement, now as you have this great awakening, is this sort of new missionary zeal. Right. The, the, okay, now, look, I can't just pray for the heathen. I can't just evangelize my neighbor. We need to develop coordinating agencies and associations to send forth people. Like we have a responsibility, an imperative, to go ourselves. And so you see uh, all th- every denomination in England, for example, every major denomination founds their first missions agency in the 1770s, 80s, and 90s. Mm, mm-hmm. And that's sort of when the modern missions movement takes place. So, But but you would not. If you're reading Richard Baxter and you're reading Joseph Elaine and you're reading Isaac Watts, uh, John Owen, you're going to see a heart for lost people that didn't quite express itself in the missions movement. That that came you know, a century later. But but this sentiment of this verse, pity the nations, O our God, I think that was in the hearts of our Puritan brothers in the, the 17th century. Hmm. A couple notes on the tune here. The tune we typically sing to this song is the tune titled St. Columbia, mm. which is a traditional Irish tune from what I gather late, later 1800s, maybe early 1900s. And it's actually the same tune to which we sing the Psalm 23, the Lord, uh, uh, the King of love, my shepherd is. Yes. And, and I'll just say, if I can be snooty for a minute, if you're singing Psalm 23 to any other tune, you're losing. Hmm. You got to sing to this tune. This yeah. is the tune to sing. The King of Love, My Shepherd is to. Beautiful tune. And it's so, I, I would be hard pressed to find any tune in the world hmm. I think that better matches lyrics than how this tune matches the lyrics to How Sweet and Awful is the Place. Yeah. It just ev- evokes the words yeah. and the sentiments so well. 
But another another decent tune is actually the original tune that was chosen for this hymn, and that's a that's a tune called Dundee, <laughs> and it came from the early 1600s. It was actually the first tune uh, used for William Cowper's hymn, God Moves in Mysterious Ways. It's actually a fine tune in its own right. I won't hum it or sing it here. I think listeners can go look it up. D-U-N-D-E-E. Is that, do you know if that's based on like the place like Dundee, Scotland? I, I think it actually is. Uh, or the, the hit film from the 90s, <laughs> Crocodile Dundee. What, what is that? <laughs> probably, probably the former, but okay. I, I can't say with certainty. Uh, but I, I, th- it was interesting to me because God Moves in Mysterious Ways is one of my favorite hymns that needs a new tune. So I'm going to go, I want to investigate this old tune for it because I wasn't familiar with it when I first heard it. I think it might be a a, a fun enough tune to sing that hymn to. But yes, I agree with Alex. I think the best tune to sing, uh, How Sweet and Awesome is the Place or Awful is the Place, is St. Columbia, that traditional Irish tune, just a wonderful tune, uh, brings out the the Mm. lyrics perfectly. And uh, that fifth verse is, is so precious to me. That's the idea of, of send, God sending his victorious word abroad mm-hmm. to bring strangers home. We love that line so much. I don't think we ever sing that without repeating that line. Mm. I always ask the congregation to, to sing that line again because we want that to be our prayer when we sing this hymn. Amen. Amen. Alex, any other thoughts on, on how sweet and awesome? Yeah, I just thought about this. We have every month a special prayer meeting devoted to missions. I wonder if we shouldn't sing the last two verses of this song, hmm. maybe not every time, but frequently at the opening or end of a missions prayer meeting, because I think it is, it is so appropriate hmm. uh, when, when uh, seeking to promote the work of missions in the life of your church. I love it. I think that's a great idea. But we are out of time for this hymn talk. Alex, thank you for your time. Happy to be here. 